Welcome to episode 211 of Control the Controllables and our final episode of the year and we hope you have had a great festive period wherever you are in the world and this is a little opportunity I have Vicky beside me as we're going to look back over the last 12 months of Control the Controllables and some of our most memorable moments are you ready? I am. I'm excited, actually. We didn't do this last year, and I can't remember why. But um, Time. <laughs> probably Too probably much cheese time. and wine. <laughs> but uh, I missed it. Yeah, it's a nice, a nice chance to sit down and stop and go through the year, which we actually don't ever do. So let's go. So come on, then. You're the boss. Where, where are we going to start? Only purely because it's in chronological order. It started, I think, I think we were near the start of 2023. We were um, voted the best tennis podcast at the Sports Podcast Awards for the second time, which was really exciting. And that, that must go to all of you guys. A big thank you for everyone that did vote. And if you did vote last year, maybe you could vote for us this year as well, because... We only found out last week that we've also been shortlisted for the tennis and racket. And maybe this is a sign this, of things to come. That This is going to be our downfall this year. <laughs> the category is no, broader. It's no longer just a tennis category. So tennis and racket category in the 2024 awards. Our little kind of plea to you guys. We're going to leave the link in the show notes anyone spares a couple of minutes it might seem a little bit faffy but as long as you get your email in there email address and your name and you get that vote for control the controllables who knows three times in a row i don't know i I keep saying if i was the organizer i wouldn't i'd want someone else to win (laughs) to make it interesting so let's see let's see we can only try but really what control the controllables is about is you the listener and Over the last three and a half years now, we've had um, one guest in particular that um, you guys have been asking for repeatedly. And in August, this happened. This is Andy Murray on Control the Controllables, coming soon. And it was even better than we'd hoped. I think it was an unbelievable episode. And three years of you hounding him, I I think he probably just agreed in the end just to get you off his back. Don't don't say that. That's not that's not how it was at all. I I saw Andy and he was begging me to come on to control the controllable. So we we finally allowed him to come on back in August and I know from the reaction that you guys absolutely loved it. And Andy, if you are listening to this, you're a star mate. Thank you very, very much for, for that. Yeah, you said he'd given you thirty minutes. He was where was he? What tournament was he at? He was out in America somewhere. And he, was the- eating, he was eating a, a peanut butter and banana sandwich for anybody out there looking for some <laughs> nutritional advice. And he came on. Post match or pre? No, it, was, it wasn't around a match. I don't think you speak to Andy Murray around a tennis match. I uh, I know that well enough to avoid him then. But it, it was it was after a practice session. He was he'd done his cool down. His coaches were bringing him his food and he was sat there as he was taking off his sweaty shoes and he said, look, Dan, I've only got 30 minutes. And then 90 minutes later, we were still having a good old chit chat, uh, which is the mark mark of, of the great man. 
And actually, you covered so many topics in those 90 minutes. And if you haven't listened to it, go and find it. It really is a cracker. Um, he was our special guest for our 200th episode of Control the Controllable. So an easy one to look for, um, episode 200. Um, but we also had another um, another Wimbledon champion on this year as well. And this one was a really interesting one because in September, we had our first podcast intern start um, on Control the Controllables. We've had an intern internship program at Soto Tennis Academy now for the last four years, five yeah. years now. Um, we've always linked up with Bath University in the UK, and everyone that has come out of there has been amazing. But this year we've had a, we've had Exeter University, Birmingham University. We've had our biggest intake of interns, and it always works really well. It's part of their university degree. They come out to the academy and work for a year. And as the as the podcast has grown, we thought it would be this year would be the perfect opportunity to bring in a podcast intern and back in March April time we had our um, interviews and we gave all the applicants a couple of tasks and one of those tasks was to come up with um, research notes on a potential guest and at that time the potential guest was Pat Cash and um, we thought it would be an easy one in some regard to find lots of information, but also hard to find something that maybe our listeners and us um, might not know about him. And one applicant took the time to read Pat Cash's book and came up with a question that we we hadn't we hadn't heard before in relation to Pat. And um, we I don't actually think anyone has. <laughs> well, it was in it was in the book. It was in the book. So anyone that has read the book would have known it. But. Yeah, the, the question that he brought up actually made it into the chat Dan had with Pat. And, and, and I think you'll see from, from the clip, actually, just how surprised Pat was <laughs> that we'd managed to find this piece of information. And I think, needless to say, we gave that guy, Fergus, a big shout out to Fergus, the job. It's amazing to, to speak to you, but I, I have to get some some truths you read a lot on the internet and it's like is this is this true and the starting point is that i read somewhere that early on in your career there was a hungarian princess <laughs> who, who who offered you a gift of 1 million dollars but apparently you didn't accept the money so did what is this true and did you ever find out if this was real or a scam where did you get that story? That is actually, yeah, Barker's must have told you that. <laughs> you know, it's just, this was the weirdest thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, I didn't get the money. I didn't know who it was. Uh, allegedly, it was some lady who, I didn't want to be indebted to some lady I didn't know who, was, who loved me and wanted to give me a million dollars. Allegedly, I, we heard a rumor that something happened with Jimmy Connors, similar. And I talked to him, he said, oh, yeah, she did it, did it to me as well, but I didn't. I didn't want to have to, I was, you know, a million dollars is a lot back in those days to give to somebody. And I didn't know what, you know, it just, just didn't smell right. Um, and I got one of my management group to see if she was real to go over and say hello to her. And she wrote a letter back and said, how dare you send your management people over to, to see if I was real. Of course I'm real. And, and then there's no, there's no such thing as a Hungarian princess, but I, I don't know. It just smelled a rat. And I just thought, Oof, uh, God knows what. Yeah. So it was, I don't know if she's a princess. I don't know if it was a million bucks. I don't know. But but, if, you're, but if you are listening in Hungary, me and Pat will happily go halfies now. 
<laughs> I think she's probably gone. She said she was old and she wanted to donate some money to something, but I could have, I sort of, I don't know. It was just, it's, there's too many question marks for that one. And that was a short clip from Pat Cash, who was a brilliant guest, but also Fergus has been a, a brilliant placement student here at the Academy. And for anyone listening, you might have a relative, it might be yourself, it might be someone that you know. We have now opened up applications for our placement program next year on the podcast. Uh, we'll again put the link of that in the show notes. Anyone's interested, then get in touch. I'm telling you right now, a year in the sun in Spain, having to have the fun that we have. There's a lot worse placements that you could be getting involved in. And, and another first for us as well, you know, we know that everyone leads a hectic life and there's so many things that are going on in all of our lives. So to find an hour, an hour and a half to listen to a podcast episode is not always the easiest thing to do. So we have started over the last few weeks our podcast shorts edition, which is us looking back over the hundreds of episodes that we have and picking out some really profound clips that we feel that we've taken so much from and pulling them into a short little episode. And so far we've had three of those that have gone out there. Valerie Condos Field, who if anybody listens to the podcast will know how much we love Valerie and how much we took from her. And then Tom Gullickson, the world's best storyteller. I challenge anybody to listen to that one and not have a tear in your eye. And then, of course, Sir Andy Murray. You know, already we've started picking his episode apart because there's just a wealth of knowledge and insight in there. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to those Certainly the feedback that we've received so far has been fantastic and we plan on taking those into 2024 as well. And there was also a first for you this year, being invited by the British Tennis Journalists Association to their end of year awards and Christmas lunch. Very posh. How was your imposter syndrome that day? Yeah, pretty big to start, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, when the email came through, I thought it was spam. I thought, well, what the what you talk, what they're talking about? I thought it was quite a creative way to try and get me to open a link. Um, and I spent the whole day wondering if I was there or why I was there, actually. Um, but it was it was fantastic, actually. After that, it was like that first day at school when you're not sure if you're going to know anyone, and kind of walked in and. Yeah, looked around. Who did around. you attach yourself to? <laughs> well, yeah, poor <laughs> Yaz Clark, who you will be hearing in 2024, who uh, Jay Clark's sister, Yaz, is a, a fantastic player herself, a coach and also a commentator. Um, that was the first friendly face I saw and I was almost kind of clinging on to her <laughs> for dear life. Um, and then luckily, I guess a little bit like this podcast, really, we don't quite know how many people we do know in this world that we, we've lived over the last 30, 40 years. And uh, it was great to see so many friendly faces and meet some some new ones as well. And uh, But lots of great conversations, uh, a great meal, and a big, big thank you to Stuart Fraser from The Times, who's the chairman, who, who did a fantastic job. And, and I was really uh, honoured to, to be invited. But what I want to... I do want to go into all of the amazing learnings from... 2023 you know I think when we set this podcast up it was about energizing educating and entertaining 
everybody through the pandemic. And I don't think we quite realised how much we were going to learn from this process. And so al- much. And also how much it's energised us and entertained us through, and throughout. exhausted us a little bit. <laughs> and exhausted. Maybe we had the maybe we had the fourth e in, and and it's impossible to talk about every single story because there's been so much. But we have just picked out a few main topics that have come through loud and clear in 2023. And the first one actually that just wanna wanna look into was around federations we were very lucky this year to speak i know there was a lot of talk around czech republic and the success that they had certainly on the women's side of the game and just after wimbledon after marquette von drusova had won wimbledon and also all of those crazy stats of that they've had in the junior tennis as well and we just see time and time again a player from the Czech Republic come through we had Jan Stotchers who's the performance director of Czech tennis and we talked looked at the tournament structure we've talked a lot about that about Spanish tennis how how they do such a great job of their tournament structure about traveling with with small groups of coaches and that's something Thomas Johansson who was on recently the 2002 Aussie Open men's singles champion he talked about that how Swedish tennis was the absolute height of the game all of those years ago and now it struggles and he sees that as the biggest reason being that they now don't travel in small groups with with one coach and and then we talked with Jan how it really is it's a change of mentality and this is hard for some people to understand because in Czech Republic it is actually seen as a route to success you know and I think in lots of countries tennis is just an extra curricular activity whereas very much that path has been set from many before that parents are putting their young girls into tennis to make them into champions and that's very much how they are thinking but we particularly wanted to ask Jan about the tournament structure and the tournament system in the Czech Republic uh, well this is this is actually the part two of the Czech Federation system because the, the part one we've been talking about it for the last maybe half an hour but uh, the part two is obviously the great tournament system and this this in my opinion is the is maybe even more important how to become top player because you've been just mentioning just just now you know you need the kids to compete and play it's not not just about the practice. It's it's of course more very important to have this system with the great coaches, but it's about the competition. And obviously, we we have we have a Czech tournament system, uh, which is which is great, and it's connected with uh, the maximum number of tennis Europe tournaments yeah. under 12, 14, 16. and then of obviously connection connected with the ITF uh, under eighteen. And and then futures and the ITFs for uh, for women's and uh, and men's and and challengers. I am just now sitting in uh, in Liberec's uh, ATP challenger, and you know I think this is exactly what you need. So you 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 need in 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 the system to have from under ten until the men's, and then uh, of course if you have uh, so many tournaments, it save money, it save energy, save time. Your coaches, your coaches, which are working in the clubs or or centers, they are able to travel to the tournament 
which is very often a big problem because you know to pay coach traveling around the world is almost impossible yeah. only if you are if you are a millionaire and uh, like this uh, you 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 have the you have the chance that your coach is going with you and he's seeing you how you're playing and he can work with you during the tournament and this is definitely definitely the the key point for Spain but it's also a key point for for Czech Republic you know i was thinking about this yesterday um you know the name of the podcast is control the controllables and what he says makes so much sense about the tournament structure um but as a parent of three young tennis players you know it's not we're very very fortunate here to have the so many tournaments going on at the weekend but we speak to parents in the UK and in other countries a lot who don't have those um opportunities they they might have to travel three hours on the weekend to get to an event that's the relevant age and level for their child you know what we're not in control of that uh, of that as parents that is the federation that is you know the areas where we live what can we do as parents to get the kids playing more competition to get them playing matches well i think i think that my first answer to that is there's always something we can do you know and i think the biggest thing for me actually around the control the controllables mindset is every situation we're in we can look at it one of two ways right you know we can it we can compare and then we can kind of look down at ourselves and and say how war is me and play the victim mentality or we can say okay this is this is what we are dealing with and how are we going to make the best of it and to give some practical ideas for that and i'm going to use a couple of live examples i know liam brody when he when he was brought up liam brought players to him you know and his dad was coaching him and they would bring in older adults and he would play sets every day you know it might not be what we see as a, a live competition but he would have people that would just come in and they would just play two, three, four sets a day. You know, everyone talks about Venus and Serena never playing competition when they were younger. That's a load of codswallop. You know, they, for sure they did. They had they had competition happening all the time in a, in a, in a practice environment, you know, by, by people coming in. So I think we need to almost reframe what competition is. It, competition doesn't just have to be that you get in the car, you get on an aeroplane and you go and you fully sign up to this big official tournament and it's got all these ranking points attached and that's what it is. It can it can also be you bringing it to yourself. And I guess a couple of little ideas that I would give is, you know, box leagues, you know, having a little bit of proactivity and going, okay, the, the club's in the area, let's set up some little box leagues and what a box league would be is you would have let's say eight players in division one eight, eight players in in division two and throughout the course of six weeks you organize a match and you play your seven matches two people get promoted two people get relegated and you make your own internal competition um you know so i think these are the sort of things that i think Tennis is an independent sport, so we have to think a little bit more independently and not just wait for somebody to put something in front of us. So I know in a country like Spain, it's much easier. We've said it a million times, 350 tournaments a year in our region. Bang. I just did that today for 2024. There is so many options. However, 
there is ways of you also bringing that a little bit closer to you and 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 also making that more more affordable and hey who knows you know that 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 challenge of doing it can also build a real resilience and and a real desire to want to want to, to do it and if you've got a strong enough will there's always a way that's almost a seamless link into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> One theme that came up a lot this year was resiliency amongst players and how often that resilience was built from going through a challenging, difficult period. Yeah, just like I was saying, I've got quite a big thing on this, is players that have it easy and get all the funding and all the wild cards and everything put in front of them, they never actually know if they want to do it. <laughs> Whereas if you, if it's hard for you to do something and you've got to overcome a lot of obstacles in order to do it, yes, you build resilience, but you also build an unconditional desire and want to achieve. And you then in turn end up being, in my opinion, more curious about the sport you're just more attached to it from such so many different levels. Um, you have more gratitude for the opportunities that you have. You know, so many of these skills that then go on. And this is not just a tennis thing, of course. Um, but but it does it does test us. And as my dad used to say when I was young, it's character building, son. It's character building. And it used to really annoy me, but it's true. And and we've got lots of examples of that. And you know, throughout this year, that definitely came out loud and clear. And the first one that jumps to mind is Patricia He, who, I mean, goodness me, you listen to that story and it's like, what am I, I mean, like it's some kind of Netflix movie. You're mm. thinking, how is this? Someone's gone through this just to, to get out of the country, to be separated from family members, to, you know, change nationalities, to not see your parents for many years and then, and somehow become the world's, 28th best tennis player and it's like just completely incredible and, and a massively inspirational story and then of course Andy Murray you know <laughs> arguably the the most resilient and competitive tennis player certainly that GB's ever seen you know what what he's been through every single match and I remember Emily Webley Smith saying this the way he wiggles himself into matches is just like like no other and I had to ask him and, and I asked him why he thought that this was the case I mean, it, it is, it's difficult to know exactly um, where it came from. Um, I, I really do think that growing up with, you know, a brother who was also in the sport, who's, you know, my Jamie's 15 months older than me. And he, you know, he was a really, really good junior um, through until sort of 14, 15 years old. And just competing with him, like as, as a kid, you know, he used to beat me at everything um, when when I was little. And I see it in my own children that, you know, the younger ones, they seem to be the more competitive ones because you get used to losing at a young age and it's extremely frustrating and you're always wanting to beat your siblings or be able to do what they're doing. And, yeah, because, yeah, so much of our upbringing was in sport so it wasn't just tennis we played with each other it was golf football 
you know, table tennis, any of the games that we used to play around the house. Um, you know, Jamie was always just, he was always a little bit better than me, a little bit faster, stronger, smarter. So he would beat me a lot when we were kids. And my feeling is, is that by, you know, that 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 is what used to drive me to improve and and, and get better yeah. at things and trying to beat my my older brother and yeah and then it just became you know normal for me it was like trying to figure out ways to you know to win and and get better and um you know it took me until we were about nine ten years old before I started you know getting the better of him at tennis but um that's that's my feeling of where it you know where it where it came from but I'll, I'll never know for sure. And when you reflect now at 36 years old on the horrendous event that happened back in 1996 in Dunblane at, at, at the school that you were at, do you think that had an impact, that that the trauma that you went through, the the, the then togetherness of a, of a town that comes together? Do you think, you know, we often look at success stories that there, there seems to be some traumatic event that has happened. I don't know how you've reflected on that over the years. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know. My, my memories from like, from that time, you know, are, are not, are not great. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously what happened in Dunblane was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was horrific, um, you know, but then also like at that time, um, there was like three quite major events like in my life at that time, which was obviously Dunblane um, quite soon after, you know, our parents separated. And then very soon after that, Jamie moved away to uh, to Cambridge, Cambridge uh, right, yeah. away from home. And, you know, as I was just saying, like, I used to do everything with Jamie, like as, as children, it was, yeah, we, we, we were, I, I would say we're probably <laughs> reluctantly best friends and that, you know, like we're fighting obviously a lot as, as siblings, but we did everything together. And then when he moved away as well, like that was also, you know, that was really difficult, uh, you know, really difficult for me because, yeah, it, it totally changed, you know, how what my life was like at, at home yeah. as well. Um, and yeah, I missed him a lot, um, which probably at the time, like, you know, when you're a kid, you just kind of, you sort of get on with things and you adapt to stuff. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, all of those events, like in quick succession, were not not easy. And this was a recurring theme, really, that continued when we spoke to Alfie Hewitt, who is number one in the world men's wheelchair tennis player. He, he's had an unbelievable year. 17 titles, 10 doubles, seven singles. Five of those are grand slams. Had an amazing end of the year as well, being nominated at the Sports Personality of the Year Awards About in the UK. Time. I know, I know. I was, I was rooting for him. Um, he spoke to us very openly about his childhood, which saw him from being a sports-mad young footballer to being diagnosed age six with Parthe's disease, which saw him have to transition into a wheelchair and how he dealt with that at school, how his family um, encouraged him and, and kept, were very, very proactive in finding sports that he could still be involved in, you know, the sports-mad kid. And he told us how he wants to use his story and his platform now to inspire others. 
that was the big thing for me at the time. It was like I don't like being different. I felt yeah. like I was different from from everyone else. You know, no one else was in the chair. No one else was having to sit on a different table in school because you know, everything had to be adapted. But and I didn't like that. I was being the yeah the the different one, I guess, in in yeah. school. Um, and so yeah, 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 I guess that was a big reason as to why I just hated being in the wheelchair and hated what was happening to me because I just wanted to to feel. Like I said, I don't like using the expression now, but feel normal, feel included. And I think yeah. when I look at society now and I and I hear and see people who are, you know, who have a disability in school, it's so much better. It's yeah. it's way more um educated and schools are way more prepared for for that sort of um adjustment if if needed. So yeah. I think it's really a it's it's an inspirational story, Alfie, but I think it's it needs to be heard that there's somebody out there listening to this that is in that situation right yeah, now. It, and I, that's why I feel passionate about inspiring. It, it means a lot because I was that kid and I know there will be people that watch me play on court one at Wimbledon and think, man, this, this guy's amazing. <laughs> what he does, he plays wheelchair tennis and inspiration. But what people don't know was that I was also that, that same oh. child that I think many children, you know, they face adversity they face bullying um, a change of lifestyle um, struggling with you know mental health yeah. all of those key topics that you know everything that they go through i've gone through and for me sport was what really digged me out of that hole you know we haven't we haven't touched on it yet but it was that that's why i got into wheelchair tennis it wasn't because my mum was like right we're gonna create the next wheelchair tennis grand slam play it was just help let's help him let's help his mental health let's get him active again let's, yep, absolutely. Um, let's make new friends and play with the family in terms of being able to play together things like that and i know there's so many youngsters that are, are in that position now um and even teenagers that really felt very similar things to what i was going through and, and you know i hopefully talk about it. i therapist counseling when i was when i was younger i had a lot of anger problems and what people probably don't know that's why i'm very emotional yeah. player on the court as well you, you see that I'm, um, I'm very emotive out there and but yeah back then and it's, um was it was a difficult a lot yeah a difficult period and, and so i went through all the same feelings and emotions as i know a lot of youngsters with disabilities are, are struggling with so i just hope that can relay that message whenever I get the opportunity to use my platform to to um, share my story and to know that you know what I'm doing right now didn't just happen overnight. Uh, there was a long, long process, and um, you know I can I can relate. Yeah, and it all it almost feels in that moment because there's various reasons why youngsters get into those dark holes, you know, and it. It can be a disability, it could be race, it could be sexuality, it, it could be bullying, it could be, you know, it could be a, a number of various things that put us in there. And more and more with the way social media is, the, it's, it's, mm. a, it's a brutal world out there right now. And the question that I now want to move to, and you've touched on it, Alfie, is how did you get out? Because, you know, that's the bit that it feels like I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never going to be able to accept it. And you've talked there, you started, you mentioned your mum. Now, the my understanding of your of your journey at, at that stage, I know your mum was a massive, massive influence, and I know also your grandfather was a 
big, big influence as well, you know, to to be taking you to these new sports, to be trying them out, to then obviously everything that then goes with it. And I know there were some big sacrifices that, that, that were made, but the starting point, if you go back to when you first started playing tennis, playing tennis is hard anyway, you know, but stick you in a stick you in a chair. It's it's a it's an extremely yeah. difficult sport. We did you take it up straight away? Was were you a natural? Was it a challenge? Uh, what do you remember about that period? Well, I can I can definitely uh, definitely say I wasn't a natural. It didn't it didn't come very easy to me. Um, but I did lots of different sports, and that was you know go back to sort of your initial statement around how do they get out of it? Well. I found the purpose again. Talk about inspiring. He certainly massively inspired myself and and so many over the course of this year. And I'm I'm so excited that his platform and and the wheelchair tennis's platform is is growing. And and I have to share, Vicky, just very quickly, the a little story. We were watching Neil Skupski's men's doubles final. At, at Wimbledon on the TV here at home and Neil a good friend of ours and excited to be watching him play on centre court but then we had the iPad set up watching Alfie and Gordon playing in their final on court one and the noise on court one was 10 times the noise on centre court and and I think that I get goosebumps thinking about it you know that is what Alfie you at Gordon Reed and everyone on the wheelchair tour right now are doing, you know, they're they're spreading that amazing word of what is possible. And yeah, to be up close and personal, have these conversations with people like Alfie is is truly, truly inspiring. Yeah, he was he was amazing. Um one of the things, I guess, looking back on the year, it's not just, you know, who was an unbelievable guest and what lessons we've learned, but also what could we have done better? What did we not do quite so well? And what can we improve going into 2024? I'd say the one thing we failed at this year again is encouraging more female players and coaches to come onto the show. We're still predominantly male. It's still male voices that we um, that will agree to come on and talk. And that's something that we've discussed. We've talked about ourselves, What why that is. Um, but we have had some unbelievable female guests this year. And no, absolutely. And and before I jump into this section, please, please, anybody that's got anyone that would like to come on knows any females that want to come on because we do want to continue having all voices on on this podcast and and attacking all topics. You know, I think it's so important that so many of these areas are discussed with coming from every single lens within within the sport and and a big topic that at the start of the year Wimbledon announced a breaking in their tradition which was a, a big breakthrough for the way that Wimbledon have traditionally worked which would allow female players to wear coloured undershorts under their dresses and skirts to reduce the anxiety whilst on their period and you know, this has been a long time coming and being able to have a couple of players over the year over the year jump onto the podcast and discuss this in a little bit more depth um, and getting these conversations out there far and wide. And 
just after the announcement was made by Wimbledon, we had Tamara Zidanezek, who has been a semi-finalist in Roland Garros, as high as 20 in the world. And she came on and discussed this very topic. I think that's very um, important, the mental health and just the... Because, I mean, I'm, I'm the luckiest girl, I can say. I've had my period on Wimbledon two out of three times <laughs> that oh, week. Good. Yeah. But I I normally deal good with that. I don't have any problems. So, uh, but it is Im- important because it takes honestly two weeks out of out of the month where you are gonna be up and down, and then to worry about this having yeah. to wear whites and that's just one element that can be taken out that doesn't need to stress you. And that's really good that I did that. I know it's a tradition. And it's hard to break the tradition, but I think that was a very good move. But it, and it even, I think, Tamara opens up and normalizes this conversation, you know. And yeah. I think, you know, which which I think is, you know, I've worked with with quite a few girls, women, all over over the years, and it, and it's it's a very normal conversation. It's a very normal part of and an important topic, you know. If you're when you're when you're working with someone, like you say. You know, different people will react differently during during their periods, before their periods. Is it from a mental standpoint? Is it from how their body is? Is it, you know, I, I know many players that have experienced that they get so tired that they can't lift the same weights in the gym. You know, all of these. Yet it was a bit of a taboo topic, you know, or has been a bit of a t- taboo topic topic over the years. So that must be a positive as well. Yeah. To me, it was never a taboo topic because, I mean, it's just part of nature, you know. But yeah, I mean, again, like we said, we need to speak about things to process our feelings, our emotions. So it's good that it is out there. Um, If it's going to help some people feel better about this situation, then it's done its job, you know. And talking about Wimbledon, we also spoke to Andrew Jarrett this year, who is who was the tournament referee for 14 years at Wimbledon. Um, and he shared some great stories from his time at the tournament and his playing career. Uh, well, well worth a listen, that episode 191, if you haven't heard it already. But as you're talking about Wimbledon, Vicky, I think it, we also have to look at the tennis itself and the, the tournament's that have been played in, in particular the Grand Slams. And a big part of what we do here at Control the Controllables is we preview and we review every single Grand Slam. And it's been an incredible Grand Slam year. We've had four different women's singles winners and three first-time winners throughout the year. On the men's side, the single side, Mr Djokovic has dominated very much so. But we did have the classic Wimbledon final where we saw... Carlos Alcaraz take him down and then on the men's double side again four different winners including two British winners and I have to shout out Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury who have been loyal guests of Control the Controllables as they made history in New York winning their third title in three years. 
And this, they joined a really special episode this year. I think, you know, I've said I loved Andy Murray, but I loved this one as well. It's not very often we get six Grand Slam winners on one episode. Um, And that was all the winners of the doubles events at the US Open. And it also made it extra special because Dan was involved with the other two winning teams at the US Open, which were Gabby Dabrowski and Erin Routliff, who won the women's doubles and Hallie Heliavara and Anna Danalina who won the mixed doubles but an incredibly special two weeks for you Dan yeah no it it certainly was and 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 I think for the players more so you know the the but just to be fortunate enough to be alongside these incredible athletes to see them get the reward for what they've put in over over so many years it was, yeah, a bit of a bizarre moment, you know, and, and even if I look back now, it doesn't feel like it was a real week. And, you know, you as you're sitting there on Arthur Ashe Court, and I can't even imagine what the players are thinking after something like that, because you do, you start to kind of flash through many different parts of your, of your tennis journey. Um, and certainly for me, I, I found myself actually wanting to send messages to coaches and people that have been heavily involved in my tennis um, and and also I would have loved to have done that also with the coaches and the ones that I do know who who have coached Gabby and coached Harry over, over the years I, I certainly did but I think it's just we all we all know how much goes into just being a half decent tennis player yeah. you know never mind being a, a Grand Slam champion so a real privilege to be a part of their their special moment and yeah let's see if they can build on that into 2024 as well and as you say um whenever we speak to a grand slam champion that's something that can never be taken away from them um but in this episode i was talking about we did have the three doubles winners on which was amazing because we got to it was really cool we got to ask them all about it and harry and anna the mixed doubles champions had a really interesting story because they hadn't even met each other before the tournament. And Harry kind of told this story, didn't he, on yeah. court. I think, was it after they won the semis to get to the final? He did, yeah. And um, in this doubles episode, you you asked them both to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think blind date is a good term for that. We, <laughs> I, I didn't know who she was beforehand. We, we both ended up in the, in the referee's office where they have the, where they have the papers to sign in for mixed doubles. And they also have a paper for people who are looking for a partner. I mean, I, I had been there a couple of times before checking if there were any girls looking for a partner, but then one time I went there and she was there just writing her name there on, on the, on the list. And uh, I was, so, uh, so, so to get this boy. right, to get this right, Harry, you were just hanging out at the referee's office looking for girls. <laughs> That's the place to be if you want to if you want to meet some nice girls. Uh, no, no, and I'm very proud of myself. I was a brave boy, and I asked her directly. I didn't send a message, but I asked her, "Oh, is that you who just wrote that name That's on the list?" That's not 2023. Maybe... <laughs> exactly, but but um, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit old-fashioned in that way. But no, no, we. We had a few few words there. Decided, okay, let's play. Let's see if we can get in, and and there we are, win, winner. And uh, there's one more thing that was actually very funny. I didn't tell anyone yet, but just before the signing deadline closed, the ATP tour manager called me and said, "Harry, you're you're on the list with two different partners." 
two timer. And that, oh, yes, and that's that, that was very strange because, but, but there was a misunderstanding with the with the Japanese girl that she that she had signed me in with her, but I made the right decision to to stay with Anna there. <laughs> What's it, I'm what's glad it, he did. <laughs> and what what's it like to be so wanted, Harry? Uh, well, it's, it's fair because <laughs> honestly, for example, French Open, where I did not want to play mixed doubles, I got several several players asking me to play. But now US Open, I actually wanted to play, and of course, no one asked me beforehand. But that I mean, it, it it's just how it goes. Sometimes that that was the maybe that was the reason that I and we are the champions of US Open. It, uh, it's just it's amazing re-listening to that yeah. and just yeah ju- I, it's such an inspirational story I think for for everybody because you know we we see and we talk about this a lot on the podcast you know Carlos Alcaraz Novak Djokovic Iga Sviantek you know these kind of names that they've been superstars for such a young age and whereas Harry Anna Gabby, Erin, they've been going at it for a good few years, you know, and they will they would have had so many moments where they thought, this is not happening for us, you know, mm-hmm. we're not going to get our big moment on the big stage. And and I guess just for, for all of us, you never quite know, <laughs> you know, you keep knocking at the door, you keep, you know, keep doing the right things every single day. All four of them are just ultimate professionals. And they've had this incredible, this incredible journey out in New York. Well, Gabby said that as well. So Gabby um, Dabrowski has been a panelist on our Grand Slam previews and reviews. She's an awesome talker. She's so knowledgeable about the game and she's actually on the WTA council. And she said after Chris Eubanks had had his amazing run to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, she came on the review and said, what is so special about this for Chris? and shows us all is that you never know when success will come and it was so lovely listening to that back in the Wimbledon review because just a couple of months later there she is with her first Grand Slam title it is and 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 for me actually to talk to Gabby and Erin as the as the host of the podcast it was quite hard to not speak as a coach they had the real giggles. They had like real nervous, <laughs> nervous was, energy. But it was it was to to have that reflection a few weeks on, and and I guess for me as a coach, the big thing I want to know next, and this is what's now being worked on, is how do we have sustainable success? You know, it's not that anybody can win a Grand Slam, of course not, but sometimes you don't quite know what it was that helped you win the Grand Slam and, you know, trying to find that sustainable success. So my questioning with them was probably a little bit coach-led, but certainly one thing we wanted to ask them is whether it's sunk in. You're now the US Open champions. Yeah, I think um, it's still quite hard to put into words, I think. Um, It was a bit surreal. now I think like you said like going and playing you know pretty quick after you kind of make puts it into perspective in the sense of like you got to just keep going keep fighting um but yeah that it was an incredible two weeks that I'll remember for the rest of my life 100% it was amazing and Gabby have you been able to enjoy it at all um not too much (laughs) um I celebrated a little bit after the Guadalajara final actually before flying to Tokyo so that maybe counts kind of <laughs> as a small celebration that includes the result in Guadalajara and the result um, at the US Open but 
no, it was a really quick turnaround. Haven't really been able to switch off and enjoy properly, but, um, you know, the end of season is coming soon. We've got a final push, so I'll celebrate later. It's fine. <laughs> and, and when you reflect, if we go into a, a little bit more detail now, obviously I was there with you, so I have my own reflections on it as well, but first round you were set down second round mm -hmm. three, all love 40 down in the third quarterfinal six, two, two love looking close to being down and out and, and then seven, two down in the final set tie break, you know, and I guess what it brings to me, Aaron is the question of, of success, you know, and, and success and failure is so close in 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 how we perceive it if we if our success measure is winning then and 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 our failure measure is losing then we're always in this kind of strange place where we're never that far away so as you reflect back to those moments what as you went through was that was there a moment where you thought shit we're done here <laughs> was there a <laughs> moment where you thought this is going to be our year we're going to keep on going or were you just living that moment? Um, I think there might have been, I think there was a few thoughts of like, oh shit, we're done here, kind of, I think. Um, just because like, they're, you know, like you said, I mean, 7-2 in the quarters, like that was like a, you're kind of, I don't want to say down now, obviously, because we ended up winning the match, but it felt like it was, you know, the end of what still would have been a really good, you know, result for us. Um, and no, I don't, I haven't, people have asked me if I've like let myself, if I let myself think like, Oh, this is our year to win or like think about winning the U S open. And I realistically like never, ever thought that until it was like set five, three, 40, 15 in the finals, like until match points happened. That's when I was like, okay, like that's <laughs> when the moment kind of got to me or like, that's when I thought it. But until then I never really thought it. I was just like staying in the moment, you know, being there with Gabby and just trying to fight the best that I could and the best that we could together, basically. And if you get to that point, Gabby, where you're thinking we could win the US Open title here, how do you even swing the tennis racket? Well, I pretended it wasn't. <laughs> I pretended the finals was the first round match that got moved indoors on Ash. There was a slot open. And because I actually experienced that before. So that didn't seem like a weird thing to me. I'd been in a position where I played a match outdoors. It rained. We got moved to Ash to finish the match or I played a full match on Ash. And so that to me felt doable because um, I'd been there before. And so I kind of just tricked myself for a while thinking that that was the scenario versus like, oh, I'm actually playing for a Grand Slam title here. You know, something that's something that I've wanted for a really long time. Because otherwise, I think I would have gotten my own way too much. But somebody's listening going, yeah, yeah, but I try and do that. But then this this little bloody voice, this little monkey jumps up and goes, no, <laughs> it's not. No, it's not. This is a Grand Slam <laughs> final. You're playing for a Grand Slam final. Don't screw it up. So how, <laughs> so, how, so how do you stop that voice? Or how do you tolerate that voice if it does appear? Um, in that match, I do remember thinking a lot about uh intentionality and well actually in all of our matches I would say even when we were struggling it was kind of like we kind of knew why I would say and so in the finals 
it was like, okay, if we lost a point, it felt like pretty clear why we lost it. Or when we won a point, it was quite clear why we won it and, and how we made our opponents uncomfortable that day. And I think we had a really good game plan going into that match. Um, and I feel like we both stuck to it as, as best as we could. And um, I think that's what helped us stay present uh, throughout everything. There was a little moment where when I fell, I wasn't really sure what was going on for about 10 minutes afterward, but luckily Aaron carried me and, and then we won that first set because had we lost that first set, who knows what would have happened. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but it already feels like such a long time ago since the US Open. So super excited going into the new season in 2024 and Australia. Oh, I mean, uh, I can't tell you how excited I am. The last couple of mornings, the United Cup has been on my phone <laughs> as I've woken up and gone to the gym. And yeah, look, it's it's a uh, we know how much happens in a year. You know, it's, it's so many things can happen. Whose year is it going to be? You know, who's going to come out of the woodwork? You know, who's going to solidify themselves as the best in the world? Who's playing Futures events right now in Tunisia? Who is going to rock up at Wimbledon and make the third or fourth round? You know, there's there's just a whole load of opportunity out there. And as a big, big tennis fan ourselves, I just love this period of the year. I feel very fortunate as well to be going out to Australia in a, in a few days' time. Um, Vicky's looking at me not overly happy. Oh, um, the jealousy levels are <laughs> off the charts. Hey, we've only got a few years before the kids go off to university and then you'll be on that plane as well. <laughs> well I, always, I always say Dan's been travelling for years now. Well, the whole the whole time we've known each other and it, it always seemed that little bit easier when he was in a not so nice place in a, in a particularly difficult city in the world. But when he's swanning around to Paris, Rome, Madrid, Melbourne, not, not, so, uh, not so easy <laughs> to pretend that I'm not jealous. Well, I wish you were coming with me, and but it's, it's, going, to be a, it's going to be a great start to the year, that, that I'm sure of. As always, we will be bringing our Australian Open preview, and that's just in a couple of weeks from now. And also look out for our next podcast short, who will be a top Australian professional tennis player who is going to be playing his last Grand Slam out in Melbourne. Answers on a postcard <laughs> or, seen as it's 2024, answers via social media or whichever way you want to get in touch with us. Who do you think is going to be our podcast short coming to you in the next couple of weeks? And that will be our first episode of 2024, which seems crazy. But also, I just wanted to say thank you to you for listening in 2023 we massively appreciate you taking the time to tune in and support the show well said vicky a big thank you from myself and everybody at the controller controllables team a happy new year but one final thing that i would like to mention actually dedicate this end of year podcast to is it was our episode 14 and he's a coach john hicks who impacted so many of our lives you know certainly I I look back very fondly at my trips away as a youngster I hated him and I loved him in equal measure as he had me running around hotels and doing running squats at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning because I'd been a naughty boy for some reason or another uh, but he also brought 
a lot of joy and inspiration to all of our lives and a few weeks ago John age 90 passed away and I know he's going to be a massive loss to the tennis world so a big big shout out to all of John's family but particularly his wife Jan who was like the tennis mother to, to so many and you know we all here for, for Jan and and the family and a big big thank you to, to John Hicks for everything that he brought to our lives and his legend will will live on long in British tennis the impact that he's had rest in peace John Hicks it, it, it was a, a good life a great life I thoroughly enjoyed I mean but I, I was an independent coach doing other work as well I did I did national work for Wales I had Cheshire County players coming in for individual lessons and things like that. You know, I was when I'd finished that, I'd probably do four individual lessons a day, and I'd work weekends. I had different ways. Of, this was to keep good players in the game, yeah, yeah. and to for them to tell people how good this squad was, and yeah. they did it extremely well. Well, so why should you get paid for that? If I could do it now. I would. I, there's nothing I miss more than coaching. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing. <laughs>